Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Colette was last seen by friends on the 30th of October 1983. It was a short walk to her boyfriend's house, around 20 minutes. Witnesses on her route reported hearing a scream before a car drove off at speed. Her body was found the next morning, dumped in a field... She'd been raped and strangled. After the public release of a letter that was thought to be written by Colette Aram's killer, the investigation seemed to slow down. Christmas was approaching, but Colette's family had no reason to celebrate. They decided to forego the usual decorations. No Christmas tree, no tinsel, no presents. Galette's mother Jackie expressed the sad reality of losing a child. There is no joy in our house now, only a deathly silence. I just remember this empty, numb feeling, and I just, I just wanted to die, quite frankly. To carry out such, a, such an offence and then go to a public house and... Uh, eat cobs and have a drink of orange and lemonade, um, you know, I just don't understand the mentality. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 21 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 8, Episode 20 for Part 1 of this two-part case. In an interview with a reporter for Nottingham's Evening Post newspaper, Colette's mother Jackie said the murderer had destroyed her life. She explained that every evening around 8pm, 
the time her daughter was abducted, Jackie dreaded being alone and always sought comfort from loved ones. I have never been in Colette's bedroom since it happened. I just can't bring myself to go in. Jackie also made a heartfelt appeal to the public during the interview, urging anyone with information to come forward. She specifically mentioned the teenage boy on the yellow chopper bicycle who was seen chatting with the suspect moments before the red Ford Fiesta was stolen. Someone must know someone with a bike like that, Jackie said. I would certainly know if one of my neighbour's children had a bike fitting that description. Touching on the topic of capital punishment, she expressed her wish to see it reinstated in the United Kingdom, even though it had been permanently suspended since 1969. Heartbroken and angry at how their daughter had been taken from them, Jackie's parents had started a campaign at the beginning of 1984. They wanted to bring back hanging as punishment for premeditated murder. Jackie candidly disclosed that the events had taken a toll on her mental health, which had deteriorated over the past two months. She admitted, I am still on tablets as a result of what happened. Jackie thanked the detectives for their dedicated efforts and emphasised that the family had always been kept informed about any new developments. She concluded the interview with another plea. Someone must know who the killer is, or they think they know. I would appeal to them to come forward to the police. This man must be caught, not for Colette's sake, but for the sake of other youngsters. He must be put away so that he cannot do this again. Investigators held out hope that Jackie's heartfelt appeal would inspire anyone with information to step forward. However, as the weeks continued to drag on, leads remained scarce. In the new year, Detective Chief Inspector Bruce Foster launched a renewed appeal for information. He was of the belief that someone knew the killer's identity and was withholding vital information. DCI Foster urged the public not to wait, insisting that any information provided would be treated in the strictest confidence. Despite the passage of time, the authorities were still working around the clock on the unsolved case, with over 100 detectives still assigned to the investigation. Shortly after the appeal, a desperate phone call was made to the Evening Post which had kept the public updated on the case almost daily. A call was from a sobbing woman who felt she knew the killer but refused to share her name. The call was taken by a switchboard operator who then transferred the woman to the news desk where she spoke with chief reporter Tony Donnelly. The woman's nerve seemingly overcame her, and within a minute the caller abruptly hung up. The following week, this same woman contacted the police in West Bridgeford, but once more she refused to identify the man she thought was the killer. 
Detective Superintendent Tony Hopewell spoke to the media and implored the woman to come forward. He explained there was an incident room at Keyworth with detectives manning the phone line 24 hours a day. Superintendent Hopewell pleaded with the caller to again reach out, telling her, If she is apprehensive, I would ask her to ring me personally and in the strictest confidence. Despite the appeals, the woman did not call back. Toward the end of February, the investigation slowly wound down and it was announced the incident room was being closed. Detective Chief Superintendent John McNaught stressed that despite this development, the investigation into Colette's murder would continue. Colette Aram's funeral did not take place until five months after her murder. She had died in autumn and was buried in spring. On April 2nd, 1984, her loved ones gathered at Plum Tree Parish Church to finally lay her to rest. The painful loss of Jackie's only daughter was worsened by the fact her killer was free, and the same thing could happen to someone else. Jackie said, We should not have to bury her. If her time had come, she would have died naturally. I cannot bear to think of another family having to live through what we have done. This man must be caught before he strikes again. The Arams feared their daughter would never truly be at peace while her killer was free, as one day it could be necessary to exhume her body. Detective Superintendent Bob Davy announced, Sooner or later we will get him. It was difficult to assess if the officer truly believed what he said and was just trying to provide Colette's parents with some form of comfort. Two days later in the evening post, the Aram family published a notice to extend their heartfelt thanks to the officers working on the case and for the floral tribute sent to Colette's loved ones. In April, a fresh lead was uncovered by workmen in Keyworth. In a narrow cut through not far from where the stolen Red Fort Fiesta had been abandoned, they came across a significant clue, the keys to the car. They had been tossed in a privet hedge, nestled within a cut through from Mount Pleasant to the ridings, just off Meadow Drive. Upon closer inspection, the keys were attached to an oval-shaped keyring bearing the words Florida Clearwater on one side and Sand Key on the other. Detectives shared their belief that the killer was a local man or somebody who came from the area immediately surrounding Keyworth. Later that same month, investigators again sought the public's help in their quest for answers. They appealed for assistance in locating specific items. A 1983 green diary with the initials BOCM, thought to stand for British Oil and Cake Mills, 
an old pair of men's size nine boots, and several tins of Whiskers cat food. These items had been left in the stolen Ford Fiesta, however when the car was recovered they were missing, much like a tape recorder and several cassettes that had been taken but were later recovered. Officers revealed this further development for the first time on April 20th. They suggested that the killer had likely disposed of them. When releasing the information about the items, detectives once more reminded the public of the route that the killer had taken in the stolen vehicle. They highlighted the Red Ford Fiesta's parking spot outside a shopping area on Wolds Drive not too far from Mount Pleasant, around 5pm. Afterwards, the car remained unseen until 6.20pm, leaving detectives puzzled as to the killer's whereabouts during that period. It was speculated they lived locally, briefly returning home, or were visiting a friend or relative in the Keyworth area. In conjunction with these revelations... Detectives modified their description of the suspect. They now believed his hair to be lighter than initially assumed, either fair or very light brown with a wavy texture. Additionally, he was thought to be clean-shaven, standing between 5 feet 6 inches and 5 feet 8 inches tall with an athletic build. On June 7, 1984, Crime Watch, a television programme on the BBC, aired its first episode and featured a segment on Colette Aram's murder. The formula of reconstructions of unsolved crimes had already proved useful on television shows in both West Germany and Holland, and it was hoped it would do the same in the UK. The original German series had been running for almost 20 years and had reportedly solved 40% of the cases that were covered. The purpose of the series was to refresh memories by reconstructing the circumstances surrounding the crime. Keith Robinson found himself in the unusual role of portraying a killer, a choice made due to his striking resemblance to the photo fit. Before the episode aired, he quipped, I'm letting my local police know about the programme, just in case. The premiere of Crime Watch was aired shortly after the 9pm news, led by host Nick Ross. It featured a reconstruction of Colette's last known movements, as well as the path it was believed her killer had taken after making off with the stolen red Ford Fiesta. The programme concluded with an appeal to the public for any information pertaining to the murder. Colette Aram's parents were torn between watching the broadcast as it aired or recording it to watch at a later date. Ultimately, they chose to watch it live but felt conflicted about having to endure the reconstruction. Her mother Jackie said... If this program can bring out at least one new piece of evidence which will help to catch the person responsible and put him behind bars, then it would have been worthwhile. 
In the ensuing days, detectives were inundated with an influx of over 400 calls from concerned locals eager to contribute to the ongoing investigation. While many of the leads were deemed trivial, detectives remained steadfast in their commitment to follow up each one. Despite the exhaustive investigation into all of the tips that had come in, investigators were no closer to finding the killer. As October 30th, 1984 marked the first anniversary of Colette's murder, the Evening Post printed tributes under the In Memoriam section of the newspaper. One read, Another year brings round the day when you were tragically taken away from us. Could someone give us an answer to help ease the pain? If only we could see your happy, smiling face. Not just today, but every day. God bless and keep you safe, Colette. Grandma and Grandad Twelves. The anniversary also brought other news. Detectives revealed they had found fragmented fingerprints on the Red Fort Fiesta. They also recovered fingerprints on the letter sent to detectives purported to be from the killer. These prints were used to help rule out various persons of interest who had emerged over the past year, but the killer was still not identified. In February of the following year, Detective Chief Superintendent John McNaught announced that he was retiring after 32 years working for the police force. As he prepared for retirement, the detective could not help but feel disappointed. There were two murders he couldn't solve. Galette Aram and John Lander, a taxi driver who was stabbed to death. The hunt for Colette's killer continued, headed by Detective Superintendent Bob Davy. Time dragged on with no resolution, and more anniversaries passed with little progress on the case. In April 1986, Operation Stranger was launched, focusing on a series of unsolved child murders in the United Kingdom which included Colette's. Top detectives from 16 different forces met in London to go over 20 unsolved murders and abductions to see if there were any links between the cases. On August 4th of that year, it was announced that Colette Aram's murder could be connected to the murders of Dawn Ashworth and Linda Mann. Dawn's body had been found two days earlier near £10 Lane in Leicestershire. All three girls had disappeared from near their homes and were the victims of brutal sexual assaults before they were strangled. Detective Superintendent Davy said it was too early to tell whether the cases were linked, but insisted investigators were keeping an open mind. Subsequently, on September 19, 1987, Colin Pitchfork was arrested for the murders of Dawn Ashworth and Linda Mann. He was connected to their murders via DNA, but he was ruled out as a suspect in the killing of Colette Aram. 
As the years passed, the influx of tips gradually dwindled, leaving the case in a state of uncertainty. Every few years, local newspapers would resurface articles about the unsolved murder. However, despite the occasional spotlight, the elusive killer remained unidentified. In June 1994, a potential lead emerged when detectives announced they were interviewing Robert Black. Black was a Scottish serial killer convicted of the kidnap, rape and murder of four girls between 1981 and 1986. While Colette's murder bore differences from Black's known crimes, his previous visits to Nottinghamshire warranted investigation from a fresh angle. Colette's grandfather, Ronald Twells, and her brother, Mark, who found her body, voiced their opinion with the Evening Post that Black was not responsible. Ronald commented, In all the cases I have read about Black, there was mention of a blue van. There was no sightings of a van in Colette's case. Black didn't kill Colette. Someone in or close to the village did. Subsequently, Robert Black was ruled out of the investigation. The impact of Colette Aram's murder went beyond the loss of life. It also destroyed her parents' marriage. Jackie could not shake the feeling of being watched as her daughter's killer had not been caught. She later said, I used to sit up in the hall every night waiting for Colette to come home. It wasn't easy for any of us. I would very often get home from work and there were lots of messages on the answer phone, but there was never anyone there. It got too much. I became a bit obsessed with the churchyard. I used to go two or three times a week. It all became too much for me. I had a job offer and had the opportunity to work in Greece for six months in a year. When I used to come back, it was the same old thing. I was looking over my shoulder, watching and waiting. I was always relieved in a way to get back to Greece. My life became normal. It drove me away. It drove me away from family and friends. In time, Jackie permanently moved to Greece, a place where she felt she could escape from the feelings that familiar surroundings at home stirred up since her daughter's murder. Colette Aram's family was still left without answers. Over a decade and a half after her murder, Another message to the teenager was published under the in-memoriam section of the local paper. Sixteen years today. October 30th. You were taken from us, Colette, and still no answers. Maybe one day. We love and miss you so much. Each day brings a fresh heartbreak. No tears can mend the hurt. God bless. Love you as always. Mum, Grandma and Grandad Twells. During the years that followed, 
monumental strides were made in the field of DNA analysis. As these groundbreaking advancements emerged, cold case detectives embarked on a systematic re-examination of DNA evidence from unsolved crimes throughout the United Kingdom. A significant turning point came in 2008, the 25th anniversary of Colette's murder. Detectives made an eagerly awaited announcement. They had obtained a complete DNA profile of Colette's killer. This invaluable genetic blueprint had been extracted from samples collected at the crime scene and from the pub where the suspected killer had ventured after committing the murder. Unfortunately for investigators, Colette's killer had remained under the radar in the decades that followed the killing. Their DNA had not been entered into the National DNA Database, so no match was found. Nevertheless, the discovery of a profile allowed the authorities to eliminate 1,500 persons of interest in the case. Detectives appealed to the public and asked them to put forward any names of potential suspects so they could be ruled out via DNA. Leaflets were delivered to 15,000 homes in South Nottinghamshire with information about Colette's murder. Detective Superintendent Kevin Flint was leading the investigation and he expressed his unwavering commitment to finding the killer. I am confident we are doing everything we can. We now have a DNA profile. We have been able to eliminate many people of interest, but I now need the public's help. In response to this appeal, over 100 calls came in from concerned members of the public, but despite this significant response, no developments were made. In March 2009, the authorities began conducting a familial search of the National DNA Database. This innovative method hinged on the relatively recent concept of familial genetic profiling introduced in 2003. The technique allowed detectives to explore potential genetic connections between a killer's DNA profile and individuals present on the database. Shockingly, the detectives received a match to 20-year-old John Paul Hutchinson. He had been arrested on a motoring charge in 2008 after a collision on the way to celebrate a friend's 21st birthday. Since John Paul had not been born at the time of Colette's murder, detectives redirected their focus to his immediate relatives. They turned their attention to his father, 50-year-old Paul Stewart Hutchinson. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. For the past 26 years, Paul Hutchinson had lived in West Bridgeford, Nottinghamshire, just six miles from where Colette Aram was abducted and killed. Hutchinson was a father to five grown children, two from a previous relationship and three from his current marriage. He seemed to have lived an outwardly unremarkable existence, marrying twice and working a variety of jobs throughout his life. Hutchinson had spent time employed as a railway engineer and supported children with special needs. He also claimed to have graduated with a master's degree in psychology, however this was later proven to be false. In the days after Colette's murder, Hutchinson had disappeared. He told friends and family that he was having treatment for lung cancer. Upon his return, his hair had been shaved extremely close to his scalp. The change he alleged was a result of chemotherapy. During this period, he lived at the home of his wife's parents on Manor Road in Keyworth, just a mile from where the Redford Fiesta had been abandoned. By 2009, Hutchinson was in ill health both physically and mentally. Diabetes had impacted his vision and mobility. Depression had also become a long-term condition for which he required medication. 
Entering his fifth decade, Hutchinson did not seem physically imposing. Most thought of him as a quiet family man, all the more surprising when he was arrested in connection with Colette's murder on April 7th, 2009. During questioning, he offered a perplexing explanation, suggesting that the DNA discovered at the crime scene had originated from someone else, more specifically his brother Gerhard. Gerhard had died a year earlier and had been cremated, eliminating any possibility of extracting his DNA. But this was not the only evidence tying Hutchinson to the crime. Subsequent fingerprint analysis further solidified the case, as Hutchinson's prints matched those on the letter sent to detectives decades earlier. Just the next day, Paul Hutchinson was charged with Colette Aram's murder. On October 5th, Hutchinson appeared in court wearing a black and grey jumper and cream trousers. He seemed frail as he tightly gripped a walking stick. When asked to enter a plea, Hutchinson spoke clearly pleading not guilty to one charge of murder and one charge of rape. Paul Hutchinson was scheduled to stand trial for Colette's murder in January 2010, but on December 21, 2009, he appeared at Nottingham Crown Court. Using a walking stick to steady himself, Hutchinson rose and spoke only to confirm his name and change his plea. His voice cracked as he said the word guilty. The change of plea came after detectives discovered a sample of his brother's blood had been held on file at a hospital. Gerhard's DNA profile did not match Colette's killer. The profile from the scene and a towel recovered from the toilet in the generous Britain pub had come back as a perfect match to Paul Hutchinson. The evidence against him was too overwhelming to contest. During the court proceedings, Greg Dickinson QC detailed the crime. The prosecutor said that on the day of October 30th, 1983, Hutchinson had been hiding in a hut near where the Red Ford Fiesta was stolen. He was there watching girls horse riding at the nearby stable. Armed with a bread knife, Hutchinson had been spotted numerous times over the course of the evening before Colette was abducted. It was alleged that he had been searching for victims and the prosecutor said that Hutchinson had approached two separate schoolgirls but did not abduct them. Greg Dickinson QC told the court, the abduction and murder was premeditated and sexually motivated. Colette was abducted by force, and her screams were heard by local residents. According to the prosecutor, she received a blow to the head which left her with a bleeding laceration, but it may not have been sufficient enough to render her unconscious. 
Dickinson continued telling the courtroom. She would have been alive and conscious when she was sexually assaulted in the car. The prosecutor explained that Hutchinson then strangled Colette with his bare hands. The rape charge had been dropped after Hutchinson had admitted the murder was premeditated and sexually motivated. As details of the killing were read aloud to the court during the ten-minute hearing, Colette's mother Jackie began to weep in the public gallery. She was comforted by her former husband, Colette's father Tony, and their son Mark. Alongside the family sat most of the detectives who had worked on the original investigation. Outside of court, Detective Superintendent Kevin Flint commented, Our thoughts today are with Colette's parents Jackie and Tony, who have endured 26 years knowing a killer has evaded justice. Hutchinson made no comment in interview. He showed no emotion. He is an emotionless man. Detective Superintendent Flint said that although he had not been able to link Hutchinson to other unsolved crimes, the police would continue to investigate the possibility that he had killed again. The detective said, It is most unusual for somebody to commit such a grave crime and then blend back into society. But that is what he has managed to do. He has gone about his life as if he was a normal family man. Jackie, who had rushed back from Greece on short notice to attend the plea hearing, later voiced her disbelief about Hutchinson's actions. I find it absolutely unbelievable that this man can sit there in court and act quite normal knowing these horrendous, absolutely diabolical things that he did to my daughter, this, this beautiful, innocent 16-year-old. And he's sitting there in court as if he's waiting for a bus, if you like. There's no emotion, nothing. There's no emotion ever in his face. And there ever, actually doesn't seem to be any remorse on his side either. Jackie went on to say, he carried on having what would appear to be a normal family life. He took that away from us. He not only destroyed our family, but his family as well. I can't think about that side of things. It was horrific when I was sat in court, hearing the full extent of what happened to her. I knew some of it. To actually hear some of the disgusting, horrific things that he did to my daughter, that has played havoc with me. For me as a mother, I wanted to know what happened to her, and I still do. If I'd had to sit through it, I would. I need to know. She left my house perfectly happy. A normal 16-year-old. She was perfectly healthy and happy. And she never came back again. She said, I will be fine, Mum. I never saw her again. Ian Cunningham, a member of the CPS Complex Casework Unit spoke about the crime and how Hutchinson had decided to change his plea. Cunningham told the Evening Post, 
The fact that Hutchinson was forced to acknowledge his guilt is a tribute to the persistence of the police and the advances in forensic techniques. The prosecution case was overwhelming and left Hutchinson with no viable option but to plead guilty. The tragedy remains as stark now as it was those many years ago. Colette's family have borne this all that time. Our thoughts are with them. Paul Hutchinson's neighbours were stunned by his arrest. After he admitted to the murder, they were struggling to come to terms with the fact they had lived next door to a killer for years. One local said, As a Christian, I cannot be judgmental, but there was nothing to suspect, Paul. I lived in Keyworth at the time of Colette's death and remember the police activity was rife. This murder happened before Hutchinson's children were even born. That's the terrible thing about it. It has wrecked that family, and it's about rebuilding lives now, on both sides. Another neighbour who had lived on the same street for over 15 years spoke about how Hutchinson appeared to be a friendly, family-oriented man. I lived in Keyworth at the time Colette died and my stepdaughter knew her as they were training under the same hairdresser. I always thought it was someone who lived in Keyworth, or they knew Keyworth. To now know it was Paul. He used to go back to Keyworth and worked in the area doing the papers. I wonder whether he had flashbacks to that time. He must have had some feelings. Hopefully he'll never get out because of what he did and it will bring relief to her family that they have got some sort of justice. It won't bring Colette back, but they may be satisfied that the right person has been caught. On January 25th, 2010, Paul Hutchinson returned to court to receive his sentence for Colette Aram's murder. Mr Justice Flo delivered a stern judgment, condemning Hutchinson to life behind bars with a minimum term of 25 years. In handing down the sentence, the judge referred to the murder as a, quote, truly horrendous attack. The terror and degradation that this poor girl must have suffered in her last few moments are unimaginable. It's clear from the evidence before the court that you are a compulsive liar and a fantasist. Outside of court, Colette's mother Jackie spoke with reporters. We're no longer going to be walking around looking over our shoulders. At least we know who it is now. We have the satisfaction of knowing who it is. It's not going to bring Colette back and it's not going to reduce the suffering that we've gone through for the last 26 years. We just have the satisfaction of knowing that he's now behind bars. In an interview with the Nottingham Post the following day, Jackie described how she had always suspected that the killer had lived locally. I think the fact that he stayed close shows the type of person he must be, she said. I just knew it had to be someone in the village. To know the village like he did, to dump the car keys where he did, 
I never imagined he would stick around, but in my own mind I knew he was there. That's why I was still so uneasy. I had this thing that someone was watching the house. The phone calls. I think it could quite easily have been him. After referencing the silent calls that had plagued their home for weeks after Colette's murder, Jackie wondered if Hutchinson, who had delivered newspapers at the time, had reveled in the fact that he was spreading the police for information on a crime he had committed. Jackie said, It's like living in a constant nightmare. That's what it's been like for 26 years. And this thing, if you can call it a man, has lived his life. I often wonder if he was sat watching Crime Watch. As he was reading newspapers, was he laughing, still thinking they are never going to get me? I don't know how that makes me feel. He must have had these newspapers with the appeals in his hands. He must have seen the numerous campaigns. Jackie lamented not only over the loss of her daughter, but also the loss of the type of life they had before Colette was killed. Our lives have been put on hold. He has got on with his life. He took my daughter away from me. He has carried on living what would appear a normal life. He destroyed our family. Maybe if this hadn't happened, maybe I would still be here in the UK. It was an escape. I had to get away. It just tears you to pieces. You are constantly thinking over it. In the early days, I used to say, why Colette and not me? Following the sentencing, five of Colette's childhood friends initiated an appeal to establish a memorial in her honour within Keyworth. This endeavour significantly exceeded its initial £1,500 target, enabling the construction of a stone inscription on the side of the village hall. One friend, Wendy Hall, said, It's not a form of closure and it's not a memorial either. Is there to celebrate her life. So where are we now? Paul Hutchinson had been remanded into custody at HMP Nottingham following his initial appearance at Nottingham Magistrates Court in April 2009, and he had been there ever since. When Hutchinson first arrived at the prison, medical records noted that he required treatment for diabetes, chronic pain, and he had mobility and sight issues which meant he used a walking stick. He also reported a history of mental illness and suicide attempts. Overall, Hutchinson had been prescribed 11 medications to manage his health conditions. As part of his treatment plan in prison, Hutchinson regularly spoke with the mental health team. He reported feeling isolated as it was his first time in prison and he had not spoken to his wife since his arrest. 
Hutchinson told the mental health nurse that he was frustrated because he had been advised by his solicitor not to talk with anyone, and he was unsure of how he would cope if he was convicted. At one point, Hutchinson told a prison psychologist he thought his family would be able to move on if he took his own life. One month after he was remanded at HMP Nottingham, the nurse Deborah Edwards had been supervising Hutchinson taking amitriptyline used to treat his neuropathic pain when she noticed him trying to conceal it inside a closed hand. She ordered a search of his cell and a stash of 41 amitriptyline tablets were found hidden in a sock. After that, he was no longer prescribed the medication. During a consultation with the mental health nurse, Hutchinson explained that he could hear other prisoners calling out to him from their cells and speaking about the crime he was charged with. He knew the case had received a lot of publicity, but he had expected to be anonymous in prison. Hutchinson said that he was struggling to come to terms with the fact that he could be facing a lengthy sentence behind bars. Although he received support from his family, he couldn't be sure that support would continue if he was found guilty. After admitting Colette Aram's murder and being sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in prison, Hutchinson told a nurse the most challenging thing for him to deal with was his family's reaction. He then attempted to come off all of his medication, including insulin which would have meant he would be risking his life, but eventually he began taking his medication regularly again and was even trusted to have a week's worth of his prescription. On the morning of October 10th, 2010, prison officer Amy Catlow discovered Hutchinson snoring very loudly in his cell. She unlocked his door and shouted at him to come and get his medication but Hutchinson continued to lie on his side with his headphones on. The officer left to attend to the rest of the cells, and by the time she got back to Hutchinson, he still hadn't moved from his bed. He was snoring, but despite her best efforts, the prison officer couldn't wake him up, so she called for the nurse. The nurse noticed that Hutchinson's hands and fingers were swollen and red, and when she lifted his arm, it just dropped. When she opened his doset box that should have contained all his medication, it was almost empty. Then the snoring stopped, and soon Hutchinson wasn't breathing. Paramedics were called to the prison, and they attempted to resuscitate Hutchinson for between 20 to 30 minutes, but to no avail. He was pronounced dead at Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham at 9.55am. Paul Hutchinson had served less than one year of his life sentence. An inquest was ordered into his death. His daughter Hannah told Nottingham's coroner's court her father had seemed despondent in his final days. She testified... I went to see him four times a month in prison. Towards the end he was very down. I think because of being in prison and there were some family issues. 
and think he was missing his grandchildren, and my mum asked for a divorce. The divorce decree was due on October 19th, so it was pretty soon. It was determined at the inquest that Paul Hutchinson had died from polydrug toxicity after overdosing on multiple prescription medications. Hutchinson had taken his own life by swallowing a cocktail of drugs, including antidepressants, an anti-epilepsy drug and aspirin. Following Paul Hutchinson's death, Colette's mother had been called and informed of the news. At the time, she was unaware of how exactly Hutchinson had died. Jackie stated, If he did kill himself, I think it's a coward's way out. But then he's been a coward from the beginning. I also hope he inflicted enough injuries to himself or took enough medication to die in a way that was as terrible as the things he did to Colette. She didn't need to die in the way that she did. And I just hope he rots in hell, to be honest. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.